everyone. Welcome to Call It Red, a podcast all about Colorado true crime. Instead of doing my usual historical case today, I thought I would share a little bit about Colorado State Penitentiary. So I just went down to Canyon City this past weekend and I visited the Museum of Colorado Prisons down there and it's this lovely little city. I really highly recommend that you guys actually go down there. Um, I have some pictures on Instagram at Colored Red Podcast of that visit, so check that out. And I'm going to have a lot more up after this episode today. I picked up a number of books about the history of the prison and some art made by prisoners and a book about some of the more notable events in prisoners. And I just decided that I'd like to share some of that with you guys today. So one is a pamphlet by Julie Whitmore, and the other is by Victoria Newman. And by the way, and I've noticed this, there's this huge network of women writers and journalists and graduate students who have created the vast majority of the body of work behind the history of Colorado crime. I have almost all the books, and I was sitting there noticing one day that they're not only all by women, but many are the same women who write just these anthologies about Colorado crime. Um, So thanks, ladies, for all your hard work that I now use. So like I said, this is all the prison and everything's located in Canyon City as well as the museum, which is only about a two-hour drive from Denver and could make for a really fun day trip if you want to do something weirder with your weekend. Royal Gorge is also around there if you're looking to spend $30 each to walk out onto a bridge. Um, There's also a number of cemeteries down there. One features an area called Woodpecker Hill, and they bury prisoners who die while in prison there. And I'll be talking a little bit more about Woodpecker Hill here in a moment. So more about the history of this prison. So in June of 1871, this really small two-story building was built out of bricks in Canyon City. And for the first three years, it was run as a territorial prison meaning it wasn't run by the state of Colorado, but the state ended up taking it over in 1874, and it officially became the Colorado State Pen at that time. Colorado as this frontier wild land was the epicenter of debauchery and crime in the Wild West. Um, You can hear a little bit more about it um, from some of my other historical episodes from around that era. The initial decade of Denver City, which was later changed to just Denver, was this incredibly bloody and restless time, and law enforcement started off as not really even existing, and then later on it struggled to keep control of lawbreakers. I have a number of episodes about crimes from the 1800s, and a lot of them involve vigilante justice because there just really wasn't anyone around that would handle the criminals that were mucking around in Colorado at that time. In 1867, before the prison was built, the 39th Congress approved an act to divert funds for the construction of this prison at Canyon City. And the reason why it happened at Canyon City was because an attorney from Canyon City named Thomas Macon pushed to get the city to be the designated prison site. Um, Years earlier, he had been backed by local legislators when he pushed to have Denver City named as the capital of Colorado rather than Golden, which was at first what the capital of Colorado was going to be. And this guy, Thomas Macon, had a lot of pull with the local government, and so he got Canyon City to be the host of this penitentiary. So the land for the site was donated by a man named Jothan Draper, and he donated 30 acres of land, um, five acres of which were part of Soda Springs, and he intended them to be used for free by the general public to enjoy. 
And years down the road, he would go to a lot of personal trouble and expense to make sure that that was the case. Canyon City at that time was already this loosely established mining town, and controversy about the prison has been abundant over the years, especially with some of the more violent escapes and riots that have happened. And there's been controversy about corruption with the treatment of prisoners, and the prison has seen this revolving door of wardens and superintendents over the years. The first people to manage the prison um, were a chief officer named Albert Walters, and Mark Schaffenberg was the acting warden in 1871. Walters had this really heavy military background, and he ordered the inmates to march in lockstep day in and day out around this, um, around this campus, and he was later accused of cruelty, and he left the prison on his own accord to go into business, and what that business was, I have no idea. Next up for Warden was the editor of the Pueblo Chieftain named J.C. Reed, and he lasted only six months before being accused of cruelty and poor management. And thus began this long list of wardens to come in and out of that prison. The very first inmate of the prison was aptly numbered number one, and he was this 24-year-old of German nationality named John Schepler. He served a one-year sentence for larceny. And from him, prisoners began to pour in. The prison began running as a sort of business for the state. In 1881, they were the manufacturing facility for the Colorado Boot and Shoe Company. And they were also involved in the quarrying and cutting of stone. And in 1886, the prison saw its first infamous prisoner in the form of Alfred Packer, who, after two trials, was sentenced to manslaughter in the death of his travel mates through the San Luis Valley. Over this winter in which Alfred was presumed to have killed his traveling companions before eating them for sustenance. Um, And he's called the Colorado Cannibal for that reason. Check out my Alfred Packer episode for more information about him. But Alfred actually only stayed in the prison for about 14 years before he was paroled in 1901. In 1893, another prisoner I have covered, who was just 11 years old, was sentenced to 25 years for the murder of his friend, and in 1900, he was involved in an escape attempt in which a guard named William Rooney was stabbed to death. Anton Wood, which is the name of this 11-year-old prisoner, was among three inmates who attempted to escape, and all of them were caught again, and the ringleader of this group was named Thomas Reynolds. And Thomas Reynolds was found and taken into custody by the townspeople of Canyon City and strung up from a telegraph pole near First and Main Street, where he hung until he died, and they left him hanging until the next morning. The warden during all of this was C.P. Hoyt, and he had quite a track record of cruel punishment. For infractions like talking and laughing and taking too much bread at dinner, inmates would be put into solitary confinement for days or given really hard backbreaking manual labor. Around 1900, the prison was also the central labor force behind the construction of a lot of the early highway systems of Colorado, including the original Trinidad to Denver Highway. Um, and the highway between Leadville and Pueblo, and the infamous Skyline Drive and the original highway up to the Royal Gorge Bridge. Prisoners were given reduced sentences in exchange for their labor and good behavior, and the state got cheap labor out of them for building a highway system that was really unlike any that existed in the frontier at that time. So by using our prisoners, we sort of 
were pioneers in the development of a highway system in the West. In 1917, the Colorado Board of Correction was appointed, and they decided to increase funding to the prisons and increase the salaries of the warden and the employees in some way to get more attention towards the prisons and get more employees there. And in 1920, the prison had a full orchestra band, and they were doing summer concert series for the people of Canyon City. They would play from the second story of the prison administration building, and the crowd would be treated to popcorn and ice cream cones. So they were putting on shows and entertainment in Canyon City. But this sort of calm wouldn't last for long. By 1929, the prison had grown substantially, and it now housed 1,080 prisoners, 164 of which were life-termers. Across the United States, riots were breaking out in prisons, including at the Folsom Prison in California and at a prison in New York. This wave of dissension made it all the way to Colorado, where on October 3rd, 1929, one of the most deadly and violent prison riots in the history of the United States began at Colorado State Pen. Inmates of Cell House 3 took 12 guards hostage and they started a fire. Eight prison guards were killed and six inmates died, many from burning alive in their cells. Ten other prisoners were wounded, and it was approximated that $300,000 worth of damage was done, and this was in 1929, and much of the prison had to be rebuilt, and the inmates at this time lived shackled in tents outside during this rebuilding. I have a whole book about these 1929 riots, and I'll probably do a longer historical episode about it at one point. But that was the 1929 riots. It was an incredibly bloody, violent time, and it lasted for a couple days. Skipping ahead to August 12th, 1932, one of the longest standing and most notable wardens began his tenure. He has come up in multiple episodes that I've done. He was only 32 when he began a two-decade career as warden, and he was Roy Best. His father, Boone Best, was warden at one point before, and everybody described warden Roy Best as really flamboyant. He often wandered the prison yards with his three-piece suit on and his Stetson hat and a cigar in his mouth and his two Dobermans at his side. Warden Best believed that no inmate should ever be idle, and he ran this tight regime with his own controversial methods of punishment, including a wooden horse called the Old Gray Mare, over which an inmate was bent and whipped with a leather strap. But despite his tight regime in 1934, five inmates escaped and took a local guard's wife hostage, carrying her to her own car and taking off with her in it. They were eventually stopped by an off-duty guard who had picked up a 2x4 and approached the stopped car and began swinging the 2x4 around. He was slashed across the back with a knife before he went up to the front of the car and pulled out wires in the engine so that the car wouldn't start again. The local guard's wife was traumatized but unharmed by all of this. And in 1937, prisoners from the isolation section of the pen, called Little Siberia, broke out. They separated and stormed local ranches and held the occupants at gunpoint in exchange for their cars. To make matters worse, there was this really severe blizzard going on um, at this time, and temperatures neared zero that night. 
One of the inmates got into a shootout with a local police officer and died after his own handgun that he made inside the prison backfired on him. Two escapees were found barricaded in a ranch where one had died from a shot to the liver with a riot gun. One was found wandering in the tundra and frostbitten and another one in a canyon behind a rock alive but with frostbite clear up to his waist. By the end, two of the escapees were dead, five were frostbitten and wounded, and four were fine and placed in solitary confinement. Only a prisoner named, named um, James Sherbondi, 29 years old, was still out and about. Sherbondi was located to hold up in a ranch four miles outside of town with a family that he was holding hostage. One of the children in this family was really, really sick, and the mother feared that it was appendicitis. And James Sherbondi eventually relented after hours of listening to the boy scream and cry and allowed the mother to take him into town to the hospital. Of course, police then came to the home and Sherbondi exited with his hands up. And his legs were also barely movable from frostbite. The boy was diagnosed as having appendicitis and was operated on and saved. And James Sherbondi spent two years in solitary confinement for this. This entire breakout with James Sherbondi was a huge deal and it was big news. And Warden Best described the cause of it as a pay cut resulting in the loss of three of the guards in that section. Warden Best's handling of the situation and recapture of the prisoners was seen as this great success. And a movie was even made about the event produced by Eagle Lion Hollywood Movie Studios called Canyon City. And Roy Best starred as himself. And several other locals had parts, but 12 famous actors were chosen to represent the escapees. The film premiered in Denver at the Paramount Theater, starring Scott Brady. I'll have pictures of this film and the amazing film poster up on my Instagram. Around this time, Warden Best built one of the first metal detectors used as security, and he called it the Electric Eye. But this didn't stop another small riot in 1951, where guards uncovered a small stash of metal weapons used by the rioters. One of the weapons was actually a 38 caliber pistol, which was never caught by this electric guy. In 1952, Roy Best was suspended due to violating the civil rights of inmates, and during his suspension, he died from a heart attack before getting to return to his position as the cowboy warden. After this, Harry Tinsley took over as warden, and for the next 13 years, he advanced many production industries in the prison, including a tag and sign plant, soap factory, electric blacksmith plumbing and carpenter shops, a tailor and a print shop, and a cannery. During Tinsley's administration, the medium security unit was built, as well as the women's correctional facility. He also got a full-time psychologist and advocated for constructive programs in art and education for the prisoners. And now I'd like to talk about some of the execution methods, one of them a little bit bizarre, that were going on at Colorado State Pen. Up until 1933, hanging was the execution method, and 45 inmates met their end with a rope. The youngest inmate hung was 20 years old, and the oldest was 58. But Colorado actually abolished the death penalty in 1897, but it was reestablished in 1901. 
Right as the death penalty was being reestablished in Colorado, the warden of the prison at that time was E.H. Martin, and he was in search of a new execution method. This particular execution method was only ever used in Colorado, and the state pen was the only place to ever have it, and it is the self-hanging machine. The apparatus itself was actually designed by an inmate. And this machine is exactly what it sounds like. It's an apparatus where the inmate hangs himself. I'll have a picture of it on the Instagram of a man about to step in onto the machine. But what it was was this. A noose and a black cap was adjusted over the condemned man's head. And he was ordered to step forward onto a metal plate that's in the floor of the room. The weight of the man would cause the plate to drop down about an inch, and this closed the circuit of a current connected to a bucket of water, which is standing on a shelf in a closet in the adjacent room. So this is like some Rube Goldberg machine here. The bottom of the bucket is then pulled by the electric and uh, magnetic mechanism, and then the water falls out. And as soon as the bucket is empty, another connection releases the catch of a sandbag at the end of the noose rope. The sandbag is weighted to be much heavier than the man, and through this complex pulley system, it jerks the man by his neck up about three feet into the air with the sudden force. The death is instantaneous by the breaking of the neck, and of the 12 men who were executed by this machine in Colorado, no errors were ever reported, as was so often the case with regular hanging. The convict himself doesn't hear the water or the sand or the pulleys all they know is that they step onto the plate and then the noose is jerked upwards killing them and as to the purpose of the water bucket and the sand well the sand i get the purpose of but i'm no engineer but it seems that the water bucket i'm not really sure what the issue is with that but that was the machine but why did they invent such a machine so as i stated before colorado was in the middle of a lot of controversy about the death penalty It was applied much more freely, and there was very little time between conviction and execution. The governor and secretary of state's board of pardons were really shocked at the time to hear just how many executions were taking place, and they made the argument that the execution did nothing other than end the criminal. It didn't really deter anyone else from the behavior. It wasn't until the very brutal murder of a woman near Lyman that the death penalty was reinstated after public outcry in 1901. The woman was named Louise Frost, and she was raped, hacked up with a knife, and her head was crushed in by a boot. The police ended up arresting a teenage boy named John Porter, who had a history of rape and assault and had boots with blood on them, after he and his family fled to Denver. He confessed to the crime, and he was sent back to Lyman, because at the time that he confessed, the death penalty didn't exist. And what the town did was they took his punishment into their own hands. Luis Frost's father got a hold of Porter, and he chained him to a metal stake, doused him in coal oil, and burned him alive. And it was after this public display that the death penalty was given a second look. So one of the issues with executions was the people carrying them out. When the gas chamber was used, multiple people would perform separate tasks of the execution so that no one person was the only person doing the execution. This is largely for moral reasons. A lot of people were religious and didn't want a part of the executions that was huge, and it took a mental toll 
on prison employees to constantly be a part of the killing of another person. So they were all given small incremental little roles that all added up to the death of a person rather than one person being responsible for the killing of another person. Even though you could argue that forcing a man to walk into the room and step onto the plate was potentially just that, um, the self-hanging machine was regarded as a sort of assisted suicide machine. And not only that, but it was actually much more efficient at the task of breaking a man's neck than the typical noose that came before it. So the regular gallows and the self-hanging machine were used up until about 1933, and then in 1934, the gas chamber became the preferred method. And the execution procedures for it were as follows. The prisoner selected his last meal prior to the execution. Executions were generally scheduled for Friday night at 8 p.m. at the end of the week set by the court. The execution chamber had been readied and tested both for functional efficiency and for leaks around the viewing windows. There was a crew of specialists assigned in every phase of the process, and each person had his own job to do. One man was responsible for mixing of the acid, and at a signal, it was released to the bottom of the chamber where it sat until the lever dropped the cyanide eggs into the solution. The entire crew consisted of 10 men, including the doctor, each with assigned tasks. The warden would read the death warrant to the condemned man, and both the warden and the prisoner would leave the condemned row on a final basis and reach a holding cell on the upper floor adjacent to the chamber where the prisoner's clothing was removed and he was dressed in shorts and socks. He was accompanied at this time by the chaplain. At the next point, the doctor would strap bands around the arms, legs, and chest of the person with contact points attached, which were to be connected to the cardiograph after he was in the chamber. The prisoner then entered the execution room and the chamber was strapped into the chair by the two assistants. The doctor would then connect the cardiograph and stethoscope. He was given last rites and other religious counsel at this time. The door was then closed and cranked shut. A telephone with an open line was connected to the switchboard. A last-minute check was made of the phone, and the lever was pulled, which introduced the cyanide into the acid, and this continued until the prisoner was pronounced dead by the doctor, who was operating the cardiograph and stethoscope. The witnesses were then required to sign official documents attesting to the fact that the execution was completed. So gas was used in Colorado right up until 1972. And there was a decision in 1972 from the Supreme Court that abolished capital punishment in the United States for 30 different states for a number of years. Colorado was the last state to use the lethal gas method, and the last inmate executed was Louis Monhay, the family killer I covered in a historical episode. After gas and... Um, this capital punishment was restored, lethal injection became the method in Colorado. No electric chair was ever used in Colorado. So let's change gear here and get into the graveyard for Colorado State Pen located in Canyon City. The graveyard itself is called Greenwood Cemetery and the area where the prisoners are buried is up a hill and removed from where the regular citizens of Canyon City are buried and this area on the hill is called the Woodpecker Hill. There are about 600 inmates buried there but only 350 markers actually exist. 
The graves are marked with little metal plates, which I'll have images of on the Instagram, and a lot of them are just labeled as CSP inmate. So they didn't even put a name on a lot of them. The term Woodpecker Hill comes from the fact that very early graves were marked with simple wooden boards, and woodpeckers basically destroyed all of those. So that's when they switched to the metal plates. Not all of the men buried up there were executed. Many of them just died of natural causes while in the prison, and the graveyard is only for people whose bodies were not claimed by their families or whose families preferred that they be buried there. So I've selected a small little selection here of some of the prisoners who died in the prison and were buried up there and some of their weird stories. We have John Cox, who died September 22, 1940. He was sentenced during a time when there was no death penalty in Colorado. He was originally charged with burglary, assault, and murder in 1892 and was convicted, but then in 1895 was pardoned by the governor and released. And a couple of years later, John Cox got into a bar brawl over a game of pool and he shot men at the bar. When an officer arrived, he shot John Cox clear through the chest twice. But John survived, and he was then sentenced to life in prison, where he died of heart failure after 43 years. James Armstrong died August 18, 1903. He attempted to kill himself by slashing his arms and legs with a knife obtained while he was in the prison. Then, while he was in the infirmary being treated for those wounds, he bit a nurse in the throat. He was then sent back to his cell where he managed to hang himself with an electrical cord from a light socket. George W. Gunn died August 18th as well, but in 1937. He was one of the oldest inmates at that time at age 79. He died of natural causes in the prison. Throughout his time in prison, he had delusions of grandeur that he was a millionaire and an industrialist, and he would often write out fake checks that he made out for thousands and millions of dollars and hand them to staff and other prisoners, and they were told to go spend it and enjoy themselves. He told people he owned dude ranches in Wyoming and Colorado, as well as tons of fancy resorts all over the United States. He promised free stays at any of these resorts to people in the prison, and when he died, neither his son nor his daughter came to visit him or claim his body or state what they wanted done with him, and he was definitely not a rich man. We also have Gartuyo Mistunga, who died October 25th, 1933, from cancer of the stomach. At that time, he was the only Japanese inmate in the prison. He was a fervent worshiper of what he would what he called a sun god, and he would kneel in the courtyard and pray while staring directly into the sun with his eyes open for up to an hour following the progression of the sun in the sky. And he would be blind for several hours after this, and he was losing his sight by the time he died, obviously. We also have John Freeze, who was a real messed up character. He died July 9th, 1943. He had been convicted of murdering his wife after they had an argument at the dinner table. He decapitated her and then brought her head back to the table on a platter and set it down in the middle of the table and resumed his meal, saying to the head, there will be no more arguments at this table. We also have James Campbell Stewart. It just says he died in 1934 but that he was also enormously tall and fat. Multiple inmates had to push him up to Woodpecker Hill in a cart, 
but they lost control of this cart and James tumbled out and they couldn't lift him back into the cart. So they just dug a hole next to where he was laying right in the middle of the road and they rolled him into it. And that's where he's buried. Despite the fact that there's a metal plate for him up on the hill. Paul Henderson died May 31st, 1936. He died after a steam pipe burst in the tunnel that he was working in and he was able to crawl out and issue a warning before collapsing to his skin peeling away from steam burns all over his body. And we have Eddie Ives, who I mentioned in another historical episode, died January 10th, 1930 after being hung twice due to the first rope breaking. Augustus Passierbeck, convicted of murdering his wife with poison, but he claimed that they had a suicide pact and that he just chickened out when it was his turn to take the poison himself. He ended up killing himself in the prison with arsenic that he obtained from working in the prison infirmary. William Cody Kelly, executed June 22nd of 1934, was the first man to be killed by gas in Colorado, and Warden Roy Best told him this, and his last words were, well, a lot of good that does me. We have John and Louis Pacheco, brothers who had the honor of being executed simultaneously after they killed a rancher and a 16-year-old boy and then wounding the rancher's wife and they left her in the house that they had set on fire. The wife survived and testified against them and they spent the day with their other brother who was also in the prison for a lesser crime before they were executed. So basically the whole Pacheco family was in the prison. John Sullivan, executed September 20th, 1943, who in many areas is described as a feeble-minded moron. And moron is the literal term that they would use for basically an autistic or slow person back then. And they said that he had the mind of an eight-year-old. He stabbed a Manitou Springs woman in her basement with a letter opener because the woman had gotten into an argument with his employer. When the prison chaplain and officers came to read Sullivan his death warrant on the day of his execution, he appeared to not know what was even going on, and he actually dozed off and fell asleep on his cot in the five minutes between the reading of the warrant and his walk to the gas chamber. And then we have Luis Juanjay, the last man to be killed by gas in Colorado, and who killed his family. The interesting thing of note about his grave marker is that it has bullet holes in it due to a very angry family member shooting at it after he was buried there. We have an unnamed inmate whose last recorded words after being asked his last request while sitting in the gas chamber were that he'd like his lawyer to sit on his lap. Got him. So there's a legend that a man who bragged to inmates about being able to escape told guards that once he was dead, he would finally be free from being behind his, his bars of his cell. So what they did, and apparently he was just this big jack-off, what they did was they buried him at Woodpecker Hill with the door of his cell over his coffin so that he would always be behind bars. And the cemetery is also supposedly haunted. One such ghost is that of an inmate named Smitty, who spent a lot of time caring for inmates during the breakout of typhoid fever in the late 1800s, and he would stay awake all night caring for the other inmates. He then got the fever himself and died from it. And some say you can see a man dressed in prison garb from that era tending to headstones, and people who have visited the cemetery have even asked caretakers who the man is working in the cemetery in the old prison garb, 
and no such worker exists. But many people have apparently seen this man working in the cemetery. I didn't see him the day I went, but go check it out. And some say that if you park outside the gates after dark when the cemetery is closed, you can see dark figures moving in between the stones and gravel crunching under their feet. So that's the brief history of Colorado State Pen. Go down to Canyon City and check out the museum. It's a lot of fun. We grabbed a cheap hotel room and we had a nice fun weekend up there. You can check out images of some of the things I've talked about today on Instagram at Colored Red Podcast. And if you go to my Patreon at Colored Red Podcast, you can donate just $1 a month and receive a vinyl sticker and a handmade card from me. So until next time, everybody, thank you. Thank you.